I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. From a famed civil rights speech to a president's decision to resign, or not, to a historic acceptance speech that would have broken the glass ceiling in the White House, all of these speeches and much more make up the fascinating new book by Jeff Nussbaum entitled Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. This has been a personal fascination for Nussbaum, who's served as a speechwriter for notable politicians, including Joe Biden, first as vice presidential nominee and then recently as president. In this conversation, first recorded on May 27th for Washington Post Live, Nussbaum talks about undelivered speeches by John Lewis, Richard Nixon, Hillary Clinton. He talks about why George W. Bush sounded better on paper rather than in person. And... He talks about what convinced then-Senator Joe Biden that Nussbaum was someone he could work with. Jeff Nussbaum, welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Hey, it's good to be with you, Jonathan. And it's and it's great to see you again. Um, I guess the key question here is what's so fascinating to you about the speeches never given? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to indulge this obsession. So I appreciate that. But but for me, you know, it started election night 2000. Um, I was the kid speechwriter for Al Gore. I'm clearly not the kid speechwriter anymore. And I was holding and since and then lost three speeches he didn't give that night, uh, a victory, a concession. And then we thought he might win the popular uh, win the Electoral College, but lose the popular vote. But I spent several years after that thinking, how different our history would have been. You know, Al Gore was obsessed with Al Qaeda. Would September 11th have unfolded the same way? He was obsessed with climate change, as we know. And would we have made different kinds of progress? And then I went and worked for Senate Democratic leader Tom Daschle, where we had the attacks of 9-11, we had an anthrax attack, we had the war in Iraq. And so I started to think how even each of these moments, and they're not all political moments, some are military, some are cultural, how things cascade forward differently and how these undelivered speeches provide those first steps down that path. All right, well, let's talk about some of these speeches. Um, Many people don't know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped in to get a young John Lewis to tone down his speech at the 1963 March on Washington. He intended to criticize, he being um, uh, John Lewis, intended to criticize President Kennedy and the Democratic Party. But Lewis, at the last minute, um, acceded to Dr. King's wishes. But how do you think history would have changed if John Lewis had delivered the speech he really wanted to deliver? Yeah, well, the short answer is, I say that the takeaway from the march could have been the nightmare and not the dream. That John Lewis wanted to give a much more fiery speech than the one he did. And and uh, I'm I'm loath ever to correct you, but but yeah, actually please. Lewis didn't he, Lewis didn't agree when King said please make changes. It wasn't until A. Philip Randolph basically begged him with tears in his eyes. So uh, uh, King says to Lewis back, you know, they're 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 huddled behind the Lincoln Memorial. And in the book, in the archives, I found this amazing image of John Lewis underneath the arm of Abraham Lincoln, furiously reworking his speech. But Dr. King says to him, John, this speech doesn't sound like you. This doesn't sound like you. It had lines like, um, we will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We will pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn segregation to the ground. 
nonviolently. It said, as you mentioned, we can't support this administration's civil rights bill because it's too little and too late. And King said, this doesn't sound like you. And Lewis said, yeah, but it sounds like us. It sounds like the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the, the sort of youth and activist arm of the civil rights movement. So even though King had been John Lewis's mentor, it wasn't King that got him to do it. It was A. Philip Randolph who came to him and said, um, basically, John, I've waited 22 years for this. I've waited my whole life for this opportunity. Please don't ruin it. He said, we've come this far together. Let us stay together. And John Lewis later said, saying no to Randolph would have been like saying no to Mother Teresa. And so I said I would change the speech. Right. And I'm glad. Thank you for that for that correction. Um, and especially because you know, highlighting the role A. Philip Randolph played uh, at that time, uh, you, you're right, he really wa was er, the giant then. And to say no to A. Philip Randolph would, would have just been, it's unthinkable that John Lewis would say, would say no to A. Philip Randolph. One of the things I do in the book is I, I have these digressions on kind of what these events also say about the speech writing process. And in this chapter, because I had the, um, the, uh, the opportunity and the occasional agony to help run speech writing for democratic conventions. I talk about the challenges of multi-speaker events where um, everyone is ostensibly on the same page, but they also have their own agendas and brands and constituencies. So I sort of share some stories about the challenges that Randolph and others faced in trying to get an event that was unified when all of these organizers and all of these speakers had different agendas. I'm glad you said that because as someone who has gone to many conventions um, and listening to the speeches, there are moments when I'm thinking, that person's gone rogue. <laughs> and and, and having out. been behind backstage, I can tell you when you thought that person went rogue, they absolutely did go rogue. <laughs> All right, let's talk about another one. This one is President Nixon. You found a copy of President Nixon where he refused to resign. Uh, his speech explained his reasoning to stay in the office would be to prevent, quote, a permanent crack in the country's constitutional structure, and it would invite on every future president who might, for whatever reason, fall into a period of unpopularity. What struck you about the tone of this speech? I, I, I love this. And one of the things I, I did in each chapter, even though I'm not a historian uh, and I'm not a journalist, I got to play both. And I was sort of excavating these stories. And one of the things we think of Nixon um, recently kind of more as a, a dark and shadowy and villainous figure. But, but in fact, he was incredibly persuasive. And I, so I go all the way back to the Checkers speech, where he basically, with a sort of raw, emotional, honest authentic speech basically secured his position on Eisenhower's ticket by, by doing what people later called a financial striptease, declaring how modest his life was. And here again, he kind of had this moment where he said, if I can be similarly raw and honest, I can perhaps hold on to office. And so he says things in this speech like, look, I've looked at the evidence against me and it's not good, but here's why I want to stay in office. And this argument that he makes and, and we've heard echoes of this argument. We heard it after September 11th when Rudy Giuliani wanted to stay in office in New York. Um, oh, yeah. we, heard, uh, we, we heard bits of it elsewhere where he basically says, not about me, it's about continuity. It's about, you know, why would we want to shake things up too much? And, and he basically says in that speech, 
look, we had had a president assassinated Kennedy. We had uh, Johnson basically drummed out of office. This is bad for the world if I step down now. And, and it's just, uh, you know, throughout these these chapters, again, it's, you know, it's like the, the old saying is like history doesn't repeat. It rhymes. Well, it actually right. repeats, too. And this is what happens when leaders don't want to take accountability. You know, I was working on the Bloomberg, uh, Mike Bloomberg's first campaign for mayor when Rudy Giuliani made the announcement that he was going to try to hang on to the mayoralty. And we we're all like, say what? <laughs> right. So. Go ahead. Yeah. Go and ahead, he's sort of saying, like, I'm indispensable to New York. As, and Nixon here is saying, I'm indispensable to America. And no leader should be indispensable. Right, right. So from the man who almost refused to not resign the presidency to the woman who almost won it, talk about Hillary Clinton's uh, victory speech in 2016. Yeah, there are two, there are two parts of, of this speech that I find fascinating. The first is that initially the speech is not super compelling and powerful. In fact, you see all of the cracks that ran right through her campaign, run right into the victory. Um, here's a paragraph for the Bernie supporters. Here's a paragraph for the people who I previously called deplorable. Here's a paragraph for the media that would have expected a bigger win. And even Hillary recognized that at a certain point that the speech was missing something. And so th this is kind of the second revelation. And, and she, got, she goes back to this touchstone in her life, which is her mother's very hard history. Um, her mother, for folks who don't know, was, was basically disowned by her parents, sent to California to live with her grandparents, who basically rented her out as an indentured servant to another family. And so an eight-year-old with a four-year-old was sent on a train cross-country by themselves. And so Hillary, in, in ending the speech, planned to go back to the story of her mother and basically have an imagined conversation where an adult Hillary walks down the aisle of this train and sits down next to her mother as an eight-year-old and plays out, this is how hard your life is gonna be. These are the things that are gonna happen, but you're gonna have a child and that child's gonna grow up to be president of the United States. And it would have been just a beautiful, powerful moment. And the interesting thing is it didn't come in from anyone in her immediate orbit. It was sent in unsolicited by a poet. And, and one of the things I say in this book is when campaigns are going poorly, everyone becomes the speechwriter, right? If you're the speechwriter, you get lots of emails. And in this case, Dan Schwerin, who's a wonderfully talented writer, got this email from a poet, filed it away. And then at this moment, when Hillary was looking for something grander, kind of thought, we should go back to the story of her mother and remembered this email in an, in an act of kind of convergent writing um, develop this beautiful, beautiful conclusion. You know, I have to say, um, I think it was during the that convention where they showed the video, um, that video story of of Hillary's, you know, rise going all the way back to her mother. I think the whole thing was focused on her mother. It was one of the most powerful pieces of political filmmaking that I'd seen. I remember saying to people. Why isn't that the central focus, the central theme of the campaign? It's so humanized, um, this person who over the course of 30 years had become a caricature uh, of herself for folks who supported her and folks who didn't support her, for whom there are you know, millions of people. But 
Um, let's, let's yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I thought the video was powerful. And I thought the line she used in her convention speech that said, I, I may be a public servant, but I've always had an easier time with the servant part than the public part. Like those mm -hmm. moments where you get at the core of who someone is, that's what we want in our politics now. We want this authenticity and people who have been in it a long time get all this stuff layered on top of their authenticity and you want to strip it away. Yeah, and you know, for I'm sure you've spent many, many moments um, behind closed doors with behind closed doors meeting, no television cameras around where you see the real person. I have seen the real Al Gore. I have seen the real Hillary Clinton. And you've come away thinking, why isn't that person out there? Why can't we why can't we see that person? And I think we know because of what you just said, the layering um, just makes it impossible for them to shine through. Jeff, we got to talk about one more person. That's President George W. Bush. You told Esquire that some of the most beautiful speeches on paper belong to W, but there was a disconnect between the speech um, and speechmaker and how the speeches were, were delivered. This is a nice segue from what we're literally just talking about. How would you have tried to fix that disconnect between uh, George W. Bush on paper and George W. Bush as delivered? Yeah, so this is one of the things I've, I've found myself talking a lot about because people say like, how do you write for this person or how do you approach it? And I think there are two general approaches to speech writing. One is a writer who sets out to write the platonic ideal of a speech, you know, and then goes to find the person to give it. And, and the other approach, which is the approach I've adopted throughout my career, uh, in part because in private sector life and in public sector life, there've been so many different voices and people that I've written for that I've adopted this approach where my goal isn't to write the platonic ideal of a speech, it's to help them be the best version of themselves. And so with Bush, you had tremendously talented writers with names like Scully and Gerson and others who sort of wrote the platonic ideal of the speech. And so as, as I said, and as, 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 as you found, they look great on paper, but when you hear them, it's like a guy walking a tightrope, like, is he gonna make it to the end of this sentence? And then you <laughs> breathe a sigh of relief when he did. And so I do think something that would have allowed him to be more him would have felt better. Um, and these are, these are little techniques, right? This is the craft, not the art. But, you know, shorter sentences, one word sentences, more, um, more refrains, um, more jokes. You know, Bush was, was actually a good joke teller and enjoyed self-deprecating humor. Those things I think would have been a little more true to him. You know, the, the, the metaphor you, um, you use, I was sitting there thinking it's sort of like having, uh, look at it this way, having John Fetterman, who is known for wearing, you know, board shorts and oversized, you know, hoodie sweatshirts, putting him in a three-piece suit. And trying to make right. him put him out there in a three-piece suit and say, well, gosh, why aren't you? <laughs> why do you look so right. uncomfortable and stiff? It's because it's not so, you. I, it's not him. Exactly. I, I used to, um, you know, earlier in my career, I worked with and ghost wrote a book with James Carville. And, you know, he was doing debate prep with a candidate. And they walked out on stage and he just muttered to himself, blue suit, red tie, here to lie. And, you know. That's kind of the thing, right? If you if you wear the uniform, you, you kind of look the part, but maybe you don't want to look the part. And now, as we see, maybe you don't want to sound the part either. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. 
And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. We have a, a question here from uh, audience member in Pennsylvania, Carol Kalin, and she asks this, because we're now going to talk about another president. Do you see any examples of a speech President Biden should not have made? No, not not really. I'm sure if you gave me enough time, I could I could think of one. The, the thing I'll say about President Biden, in addition to it, it being an honor to to work for him, is that I think he does a really good job of appealing to people sort of where they live. Um, he, this is one of the things he focuses on all the time. He basically says, what story are we telling and how does it matter to the people we are talking to? And, and I'll just share one example. This was when he was vice president. Uh, he went around the room and he said, oh, how many of you guys have 529 accounts for your kids? These are college savings accounts. And, and all the staffers raised their hands and he said, that's why you don't get it. Most Americans don't have the extra money to put in college savings for their kids. And so remember that. And so for me, when I think about President Biden and when I worked for President Biden, it was always to try to, um, because he always wanted to see things through the eyes of the people he was, he was working to reach. You know, that, that's the thing about President Biden. Whenever he gives a speech, I'm one of those people who I, I'll read the, the prepared remarks um, that are sent out while it's being delivered. And I'll follow along because to me, the most passionate parts of speeches that President Biden has given are when he veers off and he ad libs. Um, because it usually comes from here, usually comes from the heart. On the international stage, when he ad libs um, here back in Washington, it's called it's called a gaffe. But anyone who's paid attention to President Biden knows that if he's guilty of anything, he's guilty of saying what he thinks. And yeah, to your look, point, I'll, I'll, yeah. are you gonna push back? Tell me what you no, think. No, no, I'll take a gaffe any day that's a powerful statement of values and defensible and morality. So I, I'm with you 100%. And to your point, I, I love that your description of how you how you sort of take in a Biden speech. He once described himself to me as a fingertip politician. He sort of held up his fingers. And when you see that departure from text, it's because he's sort of reading the room and saying, "It's this isn't landing the way I want it to land. So let me try something that, that feels more right to me. You know what, as you were talking about that, as you said fingertip politician, another thing that I, I have discovered while listening to the president and following along with the prepared text, as a speech writer, well, we know um, President Biden as a child um, stuttered, had a severe stutter. And there are moments when you see him wrestling with it 
even even now, how much of that do you take into account when putting together sentences and words to make it easier for the president um, to to read that speech, or at least to not trip himself up as he's delivering a speech? So, so he really takes it into account more than the people around him. The way he the way he underlines words and puts dashes. I will say, so my mother is a speech therapist who used to teach children who have stutters. And so as I grew up hearing her stories of just how painful a stutter can be and how hard it is to overcome one and how that really does inform, um, it informs how you look at the world. And I keep thinking of, you know, at the Democratic, last Democratic convention, you had a wonderful young man named Braden Harrington who, who um, has a stutter and, and spoke at the convention so powerfully. Um, there are all sorts of tips and techniques, and, and you can see President Biden use some of them. But I'm more impressed with how it kind of informs his humanity, because here yeah. he was as a young man, handsome, strong, star athlete. But it also gave him a little of like, you know, Captain America before who was Captain America. He, he kind of understood what it means to be someone who isn't in that position of power, who may get laughed at or picked on. And so I think that combination, right, all of our experiences make us who we are. And I think that experience makes him the type of leader he is. Yeah, that, that exactly what you just said there, Jeff, is what makes uh, President Biden, to me personally, just one of the, one of the most compelling um, people to have been in the Oval Office. That man's heart is on his sleeve um, mm-hmm. seemingly every time he gives a speech. Um, given Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, and reactions to both tragedies, Jeff, as you know, the country is more divided than ever and also in more pain, I think, than it's been in in a while. A- as a lead speechwriter for President Biden, um, you, you're not um, any longer, but you have been in that position. How do you write for the president in this environment? Is it possible to reach people in this environment? Yeah, one of the things that um, someone asked me is how have speeches changed over time? And one of the things I said is it used to be that speeches were entertainment and everyone came out to see a speech. And so speakers were really speaking to a broader audience. So they were spending a lot more time persuading and a lot less time activating. And now as speakers speak to more targeted audiences, you're usually speaking to supporters, you're spending more time activating and less time persuading. And moments of national tragedy are moments where you again get the broad audience, where people's political leanings become secondary and you just get to speak to them human to human. And obviously President Biden in his own life has has had nearly unspeakable tragedy, and that becomes his touchstone in many cases for parents who are grieving. But it also provides an opportunity where everyone's guard is down and they're listening maybe a little more. And they want to know not what this means as a Democrat or as a Republican or as a Texan or from somewhere else. They want to know what this means as an American. And so I find these moments of tragedy, first of all, heartbreaking and painful and I remember early on in my career, I watched one of my colleagues just sobbing at his computer as he was preparing to write uh, a speech following a school shooting. This was Columbine. I was there working for Gore, but, you know, sort of set this whole terrible thing in motion. And so, you, yes, you have to feel it. 
um, and you have to understand what is lost. But you also have now an opportunity to say, at a time when people are actually listening in a different way, here's what this says about who we are, and here's what this says about who we can be. And maybe people are a little more open to it. You know, sort of along the lines of what you were just saying about that colleague of yours who is sobbing at his computer, um, you know, there's a, a, a question that we have here from California, from Ka Calvin Hamilton, who's asking this question of you, what was the toughest speech you ever wrote and the most rewarding <coughs> speech? The toughest speech I ever wrote, uh, I, and I talk about this in the book because I talk about moments where speakers, uh, where writers um, often have to write something they may not agree with. And I talk about uh, John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of the chapters is a speech John F. Kennedy wrote announcing airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And after the fact, anyone who was involved with it denied having written it. And I, I go into the book and I investigate and I kind of have a, a theory of who, of who wrote it that I think is pretty well supported. But it made me think of the time I had to write a speech in support of the Iraq War Resolution. I didn't think it was a good idea. My boss at the time was on the fence about it, ultimately decided to support it. And so I remember everything about the speech. And here's where a speechwriter can be a craftsman, not an artist, and basically marshal the evidence and marshal your arguments and make a strong argument. And I went back as I was writing the book and looked at that speech because I remember where I was sitting. I remember wrestling with track changes. I remember everything about it, but I looked at the speech and I don't remember a word of it. I don't, I, if you showed it to me, you know, without the context, I'd say, I didn't write that. And here, you know, you, they showed Ted Sorensen the speech about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said, I didn't write that. And so people's minds really do play tricks on them when, when they have to write things that they're, they're not comfortable with. In terms of the most rewarding one, um, when I was at the 2008 Democratic Convention, I was helping run speech writing for President Obama's convention. Um, and again, the book is not all political and it's not all lefty, but, but that's where a lot of my stories come from. Um, when I met President Biden for the first time, I'd been assigned to write for whoever Obama chose to be his vice president. So I worked on three speeches for three different people. Um, Who? Evan Bayh, Tim Kaine, Evan Bayh, Tim Kaine, and Joe Biden. Um, so those were, the, those were the final three. And when I met Joe Biden, when it was Biden, um, he looked at me, crossed himself, looked skyward and said, I've been in the Senate longer than you've been alive. What are you going to teach me? Um, <laughs> and so I didn't work on Joe Biden's 2008 convention speech. What he did is he had me, and this gets to the answer of what the most rewarding one was, this, he, he had me work with his son, Bo, now his late son, Bo. And mm -hmm. in this really interesting scene, Bo had about a six-minute speech to introduce his father. It still remains one of the speeches I'm most proud of. It's very powerful. We took every potential liability, including the stutter, and turned it into an asset and explained why that was an asset. And, and then Senator Biden watched, sat in the room. He was going through his briefing books, and he was preparing for his stuff, but watched me work with Bo. And when Bo's speech, uh, and Bo became a friend, and when Bo's speech became um, one of the emotional high points of the convention, that was when the father um, basically said, okay, come aboard. Um, so uh, if you have seven minutes, go look at Bo Biden's 2008 Democratic Convention speech. It's very powerful. Uh, and it remains one that I'm proud of both because of its power and because of what it said about Joe Biden and because it opened the door for me. It's, a, it's so powerful that I remember that speech. And it, it was uh, as a result of that speech that folks started talking about Bo Biden as somebody who 
could go could go places politically. This is a reminder that a speech on the page versus a speech delivered, because I was helping run speech writing the 2004 Democratic Convention speech. I saw that Obama speech that put him on the map. I looked at it, red states, blue states. This looks good. It'll be fine. Passed it along. And then, of course, had no idea how electric it would be. So it's 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 not as the saying goes, it's it's not what you say. It's how, how it makes people feel. Right. Um, in the couple minutes we have left, Jeff, you spoke about uh, hoping to find more of these speeches, these undelivered speeches in the future. Since the book um, was published, uh, has anyone come forward to share any speeches? Have you discovered uh, any yes. more? You, yeah. Yeah. This is so. So someone who had written for Donald Rumsfeld wrote me and said, you remember that memo about known knowns and unknown unknowns in Iraq. Well, believe it or not, he had me write speeches for each of about eight different potential outcomes when we invaded Iraq. And so I have wow. about eight different undelivered Iraq speeches. And I thought, cool. So, so maybe there will be a volume two. And in this book, I talk about some speeches that I wasn't able to find. Um, Condoleezza Rice was supposed to give a speech on September 11th um, about missile defense. And of course, that attacks changed the world and canceled the speech. And when she ultimately spoke again, it was very different than the one she wanted to give. That speech is still classified. It comes off classification relatively soon. So I hope to grab that one. So yeah, they're, they're coming out of the woodwork and it's just been, uh, it may, maybe I'll get to continue this obsession a little bit. I, I can't wait for volume two because Jeff, there must be a volume two. Jeff Nussbaum, <laughs> author of undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Oh, so fun to be with you, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.